Hi, and welcome to Talk Murder with me. I'm your host, Natalie, and this is episode two, The Freeway Phantom. Between April 1971 and September 1972, Washington, D.C. was terrorized by a serial killer who to this day is known only as the Freeway Phantom. While at large, the Freeway Phantom brutally raped and murdered six girls between the ages of 10 and 18, all of whom were African American. There is an excellent article on this case in the Washington Post by Cheryl W. Thompson. It looks at the Freeway Phantom case through the eyes of retired D.C. police detective Romaine Jenkins, who spent four years as a D.C. homicide detective in the early 70s. She was actually the first woman to work homicide in the D.C. police department. I will put the link to the article in the show notes. It was an extremely useful source of information for this episode. On April 25, 1971, 13-year-old Carol Denise Spinks vanished on her way home from the store. A student at Johnson Junior High School, Carol was just a normal 7th grader who enjoyed doing things you typically associate with 13-year-olds in the 70s. She liked playing board games with her sisters, jump roping, and hula hooping. Her hula hooping skills had become the envy of her classmates. Her mother, Alantine Spinks, was strict with Carol and her siblings. She had to be, as she was raising eight children on her own and didn't have time for nonsense. The children knew not to cross her. Carol walked the half mile from her apartment on Waller Place Southeast to a 7-Eleven on Wheeler Road, just across the Maryland line in Prince George's County. Her sister, 24-year-old Valerie, had convinced her to go to the store to buy TV dinners, bread, and soda. She gave her $5 to purchase the items. Alantine had warned her younger children not to leave the apartment while she was away, visiting an aunt just 20 minutes north across the border in Brentwood, Maryland. Carol was apprehensive, knowing the wrath she would face from her mother if caught, but she decided to take a chance. Carol did get caught. Alantine scolded her and told her to go home right away after buying the items. Carol told her mother she would. She arrived at the store, purchased her items, and began the short walk home. But she never made it back. When Alantine arrived home and realized Carol wasn't there, she was beside herself with worry. She got a group together to search the neighborhood for her daughter, but they had no luck. Carol was reported missing by her mother later that night. Six days later, the body of Carol Spinks was discovered by children playing in a grassy area behind St. Elizabeth's Hospital. The spot was located next to the northbound lanes of I-295, about 1,500 feet south of Suitland Parkway. A quick search on Google Maps shows Carol was found less than a mile and a half from her apartment. Carol, who was barely five foot tall and a hundred pounds at the time of her death, was barefoot and had cuts and bruises on her face, neck, chest, and her hands. She had been sodomized. It was determined that she had been dead for two or three days, meaning she had been kept alive for a few days before she was killed. Her cause of death was strangulation. Detectives found green synthetic fibers on her clothing.
On July 8, 1971, about 10 weeks after Carol Spinks's body was found, 16-year-old Darlenia Denise Johnson told her mother she was going to work at the Oxen Run Recreation Center. She was going to be staying the night as the center was hosting a sleepover for kids. Darlenia, however, never arrived at work. The following day, July 9th, her mother reported her missing. Several days later, a D.C. Department of Highways and Traffic employee was driving along the I-295 when he had to pull over due to car trouble. He got out of his car, and that's when he saw the body, just 15 feet from where Carol Spinks was found behind St. Elizabeth's Hospital in May. He called the police to report this finding. His call was not the first. There had been a call from another motorist about the same discovery earlier that day. Officers were sent to the scene. However, they did not find the body. But they never actually looked. They just drove by the spot where they were told it was, never getting out of the car. A week later, one of the original callers went back to where they had first seen the body. To their horror, it was still there. They called to make another report, and this time the police actually did arrive to investigate. The insufferable D.C. summer heat had greatly sped up decomposition, meaning the body was unrecognizable. It was that of Darlenia Johnson, but as DNA testing was not around at the time, they had to wait until analysis of her fingerprints came back to identify her. The advanced state of decomposition meant they could not determine her cause of death. On July 27th, nine days after Darlenia Johnson was found, the killer struck yet again. On the instruction of her mother, 10-year-old Brenda Crockett set off at around 8 p.m. for the Safeway near 14th and U Streets in Northwest. She was buying bread and pet food for the family's three dogs. Brenda loved dressing up, having her photo taken, attending church, and being surrounded by her many friends. When she left home, she had her hair curlers in. It was so warm out, and the store was so close to her house, she opted to go barefoot. When she had not returned by 9 p.m., her mother went out to look for her. This time it was a little different. Brenda made two calls home while in the company of her killer. Her younger sister, Bertha, answered the first call, which came in at 9.20 p.m. Brenda, in tears, told her she had been snatched by a white man who had taken her to Virginia, but he was going to get her a taxi home. Before Bertha had time to answer, however, Brenda said goodbye and hung up. Another call came in from Brenda about 25 minutes later. This time, her mother's boyfriend answered the call. He asked Brenda if she knew where she was in Virginia. Brenda replied that she didn't know. She was alone in a house with a man, she said. She asked her mother's boyfriend if her mother had seen her. How could your mother see you if you're in Virginia? The boyfriend asked. The boyfriend then asked to speak to the man who had taken her. Well, I'll see you, Brenda replied. This was the last time anyone would hear from Brenda. Brenda was discovered by a hitchhiker around 6 a.m. the following day on the side of Route 50 near Chevrolet, Maryland. She had been raped and strangled with a scarf. Like Carol Spinks, she also had synthetic green fibers on her clothing. 
African Americans living in Washington, D.C. were terrified for obvious reasons. The killer's modus operandi was clear. He abducted young, black girls who were outperforming everyday tasks. They were raped, strangled, and then dumped at various sites along the side of the freeway. On the 1st of October, a fourth body was discovered. 12-year-old Nina Mashia Yates, who went by Nino, had gone to the Safeway a block from her family's apartment in the 4900 block of Benning Road Southeast. She purchased sugar, flour, and paper plates. She was walking home from the store around 7 p.m. when she disappeared. Two hours later, a teenage boy discovered her body just off Pennsylvania Avenue in Prince George's County, Maryland. She had also been raped and strangled. Investigators found green synthetic fibers on her clothing, as they had with Brenda Crockett and Carol Spinks. It was after the murder of Nina Mashia Yates that journalists began questioning whether the killings were connected. In the news, the killer was dubbed the Freeway Phantom for the first time, and the name stuck. As for whether the murders were connected, investigators suspected they could be, but could not say definitively. Washington, D.C. had never seen a serial killer before. This was completely new territory for them. Six weeks later, on November 15th, 18-year-old Brenda Denise Woodard was eating dinner with a friend at a Ben's Chili Bowl restaurant in D.C. Her friend usually drove her home after they ate, but his car was being repaired, so they took the bus. By this time, it was around 10.25 p.m., the two parted ways when Brenda got off the bus. She needed to make a transfer to make it to Maryland Avenue Northeast, where she lived. Her friend stayed on the same bus. This would be the last time he would see Brenda. A Chevrolet police officer was the first to lay eyes on Brenda's body lying in a patch of grass on the side of the road. It was 5 a.m. and he was on patrol, driving along Hospital Drive, just south of Route 202, near Prince George's Hospital. Brenda was the oldest of the freeway phantom victims. She had been raped, strangled, and stabbed four times. Examination of her hands showed she had fought her attacker. It appeared as though the killer had tried to haphazardly put her clothes back on after assaulting her. Her black turtleneck was inside out, and several buttons were missing from her clothing. Her burgundy-crushed velvet coat had been draped over her body. It was at the Brenda Woodard crime scene that investigators came across their most important piece of evidence to date. In the pocket of her coat was a pencil-written note from the freeway phantom. It read, This is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me if you can. Free-way phantom. It was investigators' first communication from the killer, so FBI agents were brought in to analyze it. After examination of the handwriting against other samples of Brenda's handwriting, they determined that it was written by Brenda herself. It had likely been dictated to her by her killer. The note was bizarre and left investigators somewhat bewildered. A few parts of it stuck out, however, including the misspelling of insensitivity, it was spelled I-N-S-E-N-S-I-T-I-T-I-V-I-T-Y. So it had an extra T-I in the middle. 
I interpreted this as a sign that the person writing the note, who was assumed to be Brenda, was in a rush or not really concentrating on what she was writing, which makes sense as she was no doubt terrified. It's not a mistake that would be made by someone who doesn't actually know how to spell the word. The use of the word tantamount really stuck out to investigators. The exact definition, according to Merriam-Webster, is equivalent in value, significance, or effect. It's not a very commonly used word. I'd say it's more likely to be used by a person with a reasonably high level of education. It's also a little old-fashioned, so maybe that suggests something about the killer's age. These are just my interpretations, and I could be completely wrong. The other parts of the note that stick out are the exclamation points after Catch Me If You Can and Freeway Phantom, and the dash in the word freeway. You can see a photo of the note on my blog post on this case. It's worth taking a look at as it's hard for me to explain in a podcast episode. You can do a little interpretation of your own if you're so inclined. I'm sort of a geek when it comes to stuff like this. I just find forensic linguistics really fascinating. After the discovery of Brenda Woodard's body, the freeway phantom killing stopped. But the sudden end to the murders did not put anyone at ease. There was a serial killer and rapist out there who preyed on young girls. The only thing that would really put an end to the fear people felt would be the phantom's capture. Every day, investigators were on edge, waiting for the next tragic slaying to occur. Parents kept their daughters close. There was no telling when evil would strike once more. Ten months later, in September of 1972, everybody's worst fear came true. 17-year-old Diane Williams, a junior at Ballou Senior High School, had spent the evening of September 5th with her boyfriend. At the end of the evening, he walked her to the bus stop so she could catch a bus home to Haley Terrace in southeast Washington. She got on the bus, but never arrived home. On September 6th, a truck driver discovered Diane's body on the side of the I-295, 200 yards south of the D.C. line. She had been strangled to death. Initially, two dozen detectives were assigned to the Phantom case. After the murder of Brenda Woodard, FBI agents were brought in to assist the investigation. At the time, the investigation was one of the largest to take place in D.C. Thousands of tips flowed in, but none of them led anywhere of substance. The FBI came up with a profile of the killer. They hypothesized that he was of average or above-average intelligence, had at least a high school education, and had a job. He was not socially awkward in that he knew how to start conversations with women and girls, but could not maintain a lasting relationship. They expected that he lived alone or with an older woman. He was likely from the area. He was familiar with the locations from which he abducted his victims, as well as those where he dumped their bodies. June 17, 1972, however, saw the arrest of several burglars in the office of the Democratic National Committee in the Watergate complex of buildings in Washington, D.C. The Watergate scandal dominated the news coverage and the public's attention. FBI agents were taken off whatever case they were working on in favor of investigating Watergate. It was as though nothing else mattered, including catching the freeway phantom. 
With little public interest or agents on the case, the killings were largely forgotten by those who were not directly affected. In 1974, the FBI established a task force to investigate the Freeway Phantom murders. The task force was made up of over 100 detectives and federal agents. They followed up on every lead they received, of which there were many, and interrogated hundreds of suspects, but every one of them was cleared. Throughout the investigation, there were several suspects who caught the attention of police to a greater extent than others. One such example was the Green Vega Rapists, a gang known for abducting girls and women in the Washington, D.C., Maryland area, near the Washington Beltway, the interstate highway that surrounds Washington, D.C. and its inner suburbs in Maryland and Virginia. The abductions and rapes occurred in the same time frame as the Freeway Phantom murders. The men, of which I believe there were four, drove around abducting women and girls in a green Chevrolet Vega, hence the gang's name. At the time police began investigating them in connection with the Phantom case in 1974, two of the men had recently been convicted for multiple kidnappings and rapes of young women, which took place in D.C. in 1972 and 73. A tip had come in which claimed that the Freeway Phantom was a member of the Green Vega gang. Each gang member was interrogated. Some investigators felt confident about this lead, particularly D.C. homicide investigator Louis Richardson. Richardson spoke to the Washington Post in 1980. He said, How can a man tell you about a crime, the scene, clothing the girls wore, how she was killed, if he wasn't there? Romaine Jenkins and cold case detective James Trainum were not convinced, however. All the information provided by gang members to investigators was accessible in news reports. None of the gang members knew anything about the bizarre note found in Brenda Woodard's pocket. Hair samples found on the victims did not match those collected from any of the gang members. Another suspect who became a central focus of the investigations was Robert Askins. Askins was a computer technician and had spent time in a psychiatric hospital. He had been charged in the 1938 cyanide poisoning death of a sex worker in D.C., However, in 1958, he was released from prison due to a legal technicality relating to the statute of limitations. He came to the attention of the Freeway Phantom investigators after he was charged with raping a 24-year-old woman in 1977. D.C. Police Detective Lloyd Davis became obsessed with the idea that Askins was guilty of the Phantom murders. He managed to obtain a warrant to search Askins' home. It was the appellate court opinion from his previous conviction that really caught Davis's attention, as the word tantamount appeared in the document, the same word used in the note discovered in Brenda Woodard's pocket. Davis viewed the word as odd and uncommon. He found out that Askins often used the word when talking about the importance of his work at the National Science Foundation. They found a collection of other suspicious items in Askins' home, including quote-unquote soiled women's scarves, photos of women and girls, and a knife which was supposedly used in another crime, although I couldn't find any more information about this. They also got a warrant to search his car, in which they found two buttons and a gold earring. None of these findings implicated him in the phantom murders, however. Davis had clothing evidence from all six murder victims sent to the FBI crime lab for further analysis. This would be the first time that the murders were officially linked. 
The green carpet fibers were found on the clothing of five out of six of the victims. However, the fibers were not a match to any found in Askins' home or car, nor were the hairs found on the girls a match to Askins. Askins ended up being convicted of kidnapping and rape of two D.C. women in the late 70s. He was sentenced to life in prison. He died in 2010 at age 91. Romaine Jenkins believed that Askins was capable of the phantom murders, but did not believe it was him. They did not have evidence to prove it, she said. James Tratum also commented on Askins as a suspect, saying that the police tried to squeeze him into a box they created, and it just wasn't working. Detective Davis retired in 1981, and he died in 2014. He went to his grave, believing that Robert Askins was the freeway phantom. In 1987, Romaine Jenkins reopened the case while assigned to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Some of her hope that she might be able to crack the case was renewed, as she finally had access to resources that were not previously available. Former investigators turned over their notes from the case, and the FBI opened their files for her. But a lot of files were missing, or had been destroyed. She practically started from scratch, visiting crime scenes, interviewing witnesses, and talking to the victim's relatives to see if there was anything they had missed. By 1990, DNA testing was available, which opened so many doors for cold case detectives. But back in the 70s, such a poor job was done of preserving the evidence from the phantom murder scenes that almost nothing could be tested. It was a massive blow to Jenkins's reinvestigation effort. In fact, she couldn't even find a lot of the evidence. No one knows where it is, she told the Post in 2018. While Jenkins does believe that the race of the victims played into the D.C. police's carelessness with the evidence and their sloppy record-keeping, it was not the only factor. The police were notorious for losing files when a new administration took over. It was not uncommon for files to be haphazardly dumped in a random drawer or thrown in a storage closet. All these years later, a question still remains for the families of the victims. If the girls had been white, would the killer have been caught? They remember the 70s well. It was a period in which tensions in D.C. related to race relations were particularly high. The city was still feeling the devastating effects of the 1968 riots, which broke out as a result of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Washington, D.C., according to the 1970 U.S. Census, was 71% black. The D.C. Police Department, on the other hand, was 65% white. Distrust of the police amongst African Americans was widespread. In 1972, Tommy Musgrove joined the Washington, D.C. Police Department. He would later go on to head the homicide unit. Musgrove agreed that race definitely played a role in whether or not a case would be solved especially back in the 70s. Those black girls didn't mean anything to anybody. I'm talking about in the police department, Musgrove would later say, referring to the freeway phantom victims. If those girls had been white, they would have put more manpower on it. There's no doubt about it. He compared the phantom murders to the 1975 abduction and murders of sisters Catherine and Sheila Leon, who were snatched from a shopping mall in Wheaton, Maryland. 
Catherine and Sheila were in the same age range as the phantom victims, but they were white. Investigators worked tirelessly to solve the Leon case. A cold case investigation team eventually took up the case, and in 2015, they were able to gather enough evidence to charge a suspect with the murders of the Leon sisters, though their bodies were never recovered. Lloyd Welch, a convicted sex offender, was already in prison. In 2017, he pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. Evander Spinks, Carol Spinks's sister, was certain that race played a role in the fact that her sister's killer has never been caught. You better bet that if these had been white girls, the police would have solved these cases. They didn't care about us. All the cases involving white girls still get publicity, but ours have been forgotten. The year 2021 brings the 50th anniversary of five out of six of the Freeway Phantom murders. For family members of the victims, the pain is still felt despite the passage of so much time. Parents of the girls have passed away, never seeing justice for their children. Louis Crockett, Brenda Crockett's father, told the Washington Post that he never emotionally recovered from his daughter's death. Crockett is now 85 and living in South Carolina. I think about her all the time. She was a sweet kid, he said. The murders forever changed the lives of the victim's siblings. Carolyn Morris, Carol Spinks's identical twin, spoke of how Carol's murder ruined her life. She couldn't keep a job, began drinking heavily and abusing drugs. It was terrible. I couldn't get it together. I thought I was losing my mind, Carolyn said. Carolyn is now 63 and has four children of her own. For the longest time, she could not bring herself to tell them why she was so overprotective of them. Romaine Jenkins does not go a day without thinking of the Phantom's victims. She retired from the police in 1994, but has vowed to never stop searching for answers. What happens when people like me and the families are gone? She wonders. This will be forgotten. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please consider giving me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, hitting subscribe on your podcast app, and telling a friend. All these really help shows like mine grow. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron for just $3 a month at patreon.com slash talkmurderwithme. I currently have bonus blog posts for patrons and I'm planning to start doing bonus podcast episodes. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, friends.